Did you know in 2002, Discover Magazine recognized the so-called unruly earth mother, Lynn Margulis, as one of the 50 most important women in science? We'll discuss this and other interesting facts about evolutionary biologist, science author, and educator, Lynn Margulis, with screenwriter Gabrielle DeBear-Pay on this episode of The Curious Professor. I'm Dr. B. Welcome to the Curious Professor podcast, where I take listeners on a journey of discovery to explore the people, places, artifacts, and natural wonders that spark my curiosity. On this episode of the Curious Professor podcast, we'll explore the life and work of the scientific rebel Lynn Margulis with award-winning option screenwriter Gabrielle DeBear-Pay. But first, a trivia question. In Greek mythology, what does Gaia represent? I'll have the answer for you at the end of this episode. I'm thrilled to have Gabrielle DeBear-Pay on the show today. Gabrielle grew up in the melting pot of New York City, where she learned to appreciate many cultures. She studied biology and horticulture in college and went on to become a biology and environmental science high school teacher, first as a Peace Corps volunteer in Liberia, West Africa, and then in the Boston Public Schools. She published a textbook called Cultural Uses of Plants, as well as labs for a well-known textbook. She loved helping students create science projects and inventions that could improve the world. Now as a screenwriter, she has helped produce several movies, one are placed in 12 writing contests, option two scripts, and has a literary manager. She writes entertaining dramas and biopics with social justice, scientific, and environmental themes. She also has a beautiful, brilliant adult daughter. When I found out that Gabrielle wrote a script based on Lynn Margulis's life and work, my curiosity was immediately piqued and I wanted to learn more. I hope this interview with Gabrielle will spark your curiosity too. Welcome to the show, Gabrielle. It's great to have you here. Thank you. It's great to be here, Karen. Your screenplay, The Unselfish Gene, is based on the book Lynn Margulis, The Life and Legacy of a Scientific Rebel. What inspired you to write the script? Well, it actually started decades ago in the 70s. I grew up in New York City, and my mother took me to a celebration called uh, March of the Animals. It was at St. John the Divine Cathedral, and they had camels and goats and even a little elephant and all kinds of animals, ducks, and in the cathedral, marching down the cathedral. And then they had this glorious music by Paul Winter. And and they said, this is to celebrate Mother Earth and Gaia. And it was right around the first Earth Day and the start of the environmental movement. And I learned about the Gaia hypothesis, which later I found out was something Lynn was working on with James Lovelock. And the idea is that the Earth acts like a living system, like the forests are, are like like the lungs of the earth. They produce the oxygen, absorb the carbon dioxide, and the rivers are like the veins of the earth. And well, that was the idea then. And I was really into, you know, protecting the environment. And so it resonated with me. And then later, I, I, I love uh, biology and environmental science. And I became a science teacher, high school science teacher. And when I was teaching biology, I started learning about symbiogenesis, big word, but I'll explain it more later. 
and we taught it in it was in the textbook and attributed to Lynn Margulis and it was the idea that life evolves from it or originally complex life evolved from colonies of bacteria that merged into bigger cells and then those cells came together to form multicellular organisms. So the idea was that life evolves more from networking and collaboration and living things working together. Well, there is, of course, some competition, but it's it may not be the dominant way that life works. Uh, so that really inspired me, and I started reading about her, and I, I found her very inspiring. One quote that you know, just as an example, she said, um, we are each of us walking communities of bacteria. The world shimmers, pontilus landscape made of tiny living beings. Most people don't talk like that. What else did you find inspirational about her life and message? She was a science teacher. She taught at Boston University near here, where I live in Boston. And she was very dedicated and she did fun experiments with her students like I used to do. And, you know, she was very bold. She wasn't afraid to stand up to people and challenge the dominant worldview. You know, she was married to uh, Carl Sagan, the famous astronomer. Yeah, she was ahead of her time. She had a very big picture. She, she could look at the stars and the universe and think about how life started and if there's life out there and then down to the smallest microorganisms. She studied a lot of microbiology, euglena, the little little single cellular organisms that swim around in ponds and lakes. And uh, so, yeah, she, I thought she was really interesting and cool. And I feel like there's a lot of parallels between your life and her life. And I'm sure that that really inspired you as well. Yeah, she was a mom. She was, she never talked about sexism much. She wasn't one to complain, but I think that she was maybe ridiculed more than she would have been if she hadn't been a woman. She might have been taken more seriously. And, you know, she had to kind of fight, get her ideas out there. Throughout her career, Margulis identified with scientific rebels and mavericks, and her theories were controversial and not accepted by mainstream science until later in her life. Why do you think she identified herself by, quote, oppositional science, as journalist John Wilson put it? Um, I think she just had a big mind. She had a big vision. She was ahead of her time and she could see things. <laughs> she, she, you know, put the pieces together, big pieces of the puzzle. And, you know, she was just ahead of her other people, of other scientists, and they couldn't keep up with her. Margulis's ideas, which focus on symbiosis, you mentioned that a little earlier, they were initially greeted with skepticism and even hostility. Can you tell us more about symbiosis and what made it so contentious of an area of research? Well, she wasn't the only one who studied uh, symbiosis and symbiogenesis, but she put all the ideas together. Charles Darwin, who invented the theory of evolution, his his ideas have been pretty central to biology. And he said survival of the fittest, only the strong survive. So that was the dominant idea. It probably still is. And she also believes in evolution, that living things change over time and develop. But so she wasn't against, she, she had a lot of respect for Darwin, but she took it further, you know, took it further to the idea of survival by networking and coordination and, and teamwork. Yeah, it was more cooperation than competition. 
Exactly. Uh, of course, there is competition in the world. You know, lions do kill gazelles, and you know, that is part of life. But there's a lot of there's a lot of symbiosis co cooperation in the world. The bee pollinates the flower so that it can reproduce and make seeds, and the flower gives pollen to the bee so it can make food. And there's millions of examples of this in nature that um, are often overlooked. I, I could give a whole bunch more, but I don't know if we have time for that. I wanted to talk more about the Gaia hypothesis, which I find fascinating. And you mentioned that Margulis worked with the British chemist James Lovelock on that hypothesis. Can you talk a little bit more about what that is and why it's so controversial? Well, James Lovelock was a chemist, and he also worked at NASA with Carl Sagan, Lynn's first husband. And he was studying the composition of planets like, like Venus, the chemical, the atmospheric composition. And, you know, there's a, uh, most of the atmosphere of Venus is methane and carbon dioxide. And Venus is very hot and stormy. It's a very hot planet, and it would not be comfortable to live in. And so he was one of the early people who realized, like, plants help modify moderate the environment of Earth. By absorbing carbon dioxide and releasing oxygen, the plants are helping to cool the planet. And of course, now we all know about global warming and burning fossil fuels is releasing the carbon that has been stored up in plants over millions of years. So we're, we're making our atmosphere more like Venus at this time. And so there is an understanding now that there are feedback loops and it's now being recognized as there's a lot of validity to these ideas. The Gaia hypothesis was ridiculed at first because Gaia is a Greek goddess, you know, a Mother Earth goddess. But it did lead to the development of the Earth system science, which is pretty well a reputable branch of science today and climate science as well. As a young faculty member at Boston University, Margulis wrote a paper titled The Origin of Mitosing Cells. And that paper was rejected by about 15 scientific journals until it was finally accepted by the Journal of Theoretical Biology. Margulis continued to face rejection and criticism throughout her professional career, yet she pushed forward her theories despite the objections she faced. What can we learn from her tenacity? Well, her ideas actually gained traction and became more, they became standard thinking, although some of her ideas are starting to disappear again. But she said that she first started studying the chloroplasts and mitochondria inside the cells of these little one-celled creatures called euglena. And she discovered that they behave like bacteria, they divide, reproduce like bacteria. And later, when we had the technology to test their DNA, their DNA is very similar to bacteria. And that pretty much clinched it, that actually these little organelles inside bigger cells may have originally been bacteria that sort of came together and formed a community. Some cells have little tails on them called flagellum or cilia, little hairs. And she hypothesized that those may have also been independent bacteria that got together with bigger cells. And when they came together, they, they thrived and they took over the planet. So uh, yeah, they worked together as a union. And so there's so much cooperation in nature. And what lesson can human beings learn from that? Well, our society is very much a competitive-based society, and maybe that isn't always the best way to thrive. You know, we're destroying our planet, we're polluting it, we're, we're killing each other, and maybe maybe this idea of cooperation could actually help us. I think it could. That's why I wrote the, the movie or the script. And we hope it'll be a movie someday. 
Margulis was married twice, with her first husband, as you said, being renowned astronomer Carl Sagan. Unfortunately, both of her marriages ended in divorce. Margulis is quoted as saying, it's not humanly possible to be a good wife, a good mother, and a first-class scientist. No one can do it. Something has to go. What are your feelings about that statement? I think that was probably true for her. Uh, My mother once said to me, you might be able to do everything, but you might not be able to do everything all at once, which I thought was had a lot of wisdom. I think that Lynn realized she she was married twice and she realized that, well, she even said it, if she had to give up her marriage, her children or her career, her husband had to go. She wasn't (laughs) going to give up her kids or her or her work. So that was her her decision. It's probably good to know what you want before you jump into everything, but sometimes we make mistakes. So, And also the cultural expectations when she was young were much different for women than they are today. I think women don't have the pressure to get married and have kids that women of her generation had. Right. She was just expected to get married. That's part of my script. She married young and she started having children and she had to fight really hard to go to graduate school and get her doctorate and be a professor. In the end, she had four children, but she managed to do very well. It's amazing because even today, women are underrepresented in STEM areas of research and teaching. You know, we don't, we still don't have as many women in those fields. So back in the day when she was a young woman, it was even more difficult for uh, women to succeed in that field, particularly at, at the doctoral level. Absolutely. There weren't very many women doctors or professors back then. She, I think she got her doctorate in, 19, in the 60s, in early 60s. What do you like most about writing biopics? Well, I think that there are so many untold stories that are fascinating. Like I'm surprised Lynn Margulis isn't a better known name. And I found her life story extremely inspiring and uplifting. And there are so many of them. And I like seeing if I can take a person's life and structure it into a good story. That's challenging. And especially in the feature film format, when you only have two hours or less to be able to tell a compelling story. What do you find most challenging about writing biopics? Well, to take an entire life, how do you take an entire life and boil it down into an hour and a half script or uh, maybe a 110 page script? You know, you have to find all the hooks or the really exciting moments. You have to build tension. You have to figure out what the person's wound is and what their struggle is. And in Lynn's story, for example, I had to figure out who was the antagonist or the bad guy. Was it sexism? She didn't really complain much about sexism, but I decided it should be the scientists who are ridiculing her. And I decided that Richard Dawkins, who wrote The Selfish Gene, would be her biggest antagonist because, and he was, he did criticize her and she had a debate with him in the story and that's in in the script also. So it's just like, it's like a puzzle figuring out how to structure it into a story and find the most dramatic things in the person's life. You're almost like a psychological detective. You're investigating the different themes in their life. What would be the most compelling of her experiences to bring forth in the script? So it's like you're doing a lot of research and investigation while at the same time trying to figure out what made her tick as a human being and what were those constant themes throughout her life and bringing those together. It's not an easy task. 
Yeah, I did a lot of research, but then my screenwriting teacher, Hal, told me, just don't spend your whole life doing research. Just get what the information that you need to tell the story. And that was helpful. I know because someone like me can get bogged down in research because I enjoy it so much and I find it fascinating and then forget about writing the script, which I've done a few times. So what new projects are you currently working on? Well, I have a big slate of projects uh, that I am pitching and marketing, and I have my manager is helping me market. I have one about the Ebola crisis in Liberia, West Africa, that I wrote. I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Africa, so I wrote it with some health workers, and I have one about an inner city school teacher. And I'm just starting to formulate an idea about a low-budget global warming disaster movie. So is there anything else you'd like to tell us about you or your work? Well, I haven't always been a screenwriter. As I said, I was a a teacher for many years, a high school, mostly biology and environmental science teacher. I lived in Africa for a while. I'm a mom. I think all of these things inform my writing and help me understand people and, and kind of dive into deep psychology. And where can listeners find out more about you? I think the best place would be LinkedIn. My name is Gabriel Dubert Pay, and I have a, a lot of information about myself there on LinkedIn. I have pitch decks and videos about my scripts and contact information and all of that. And I'm look, always looking for writing assignments or you need someone to do a book adaptation or a biopic, call me. So you can find Gabrielle on LinkedIn. Yes. Go ahead and give a search for her there. Well, it was great to have you on the show, Gabrielle. Thank you so much for taking time to be a guest on the Curious Professor podcast. Thank you for the wonderful job you're doing with your podcast. I love listening to it. And now for the answer to this episode's trivia question. In Greek mythology, what does Gaia represent? Gaia is the personification of the earth as a goddess and the ancestral mother of all life. We'll end the show with something punny. Why did the physicist and the biologist break up? Because there was no chemistry. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Curious Professor podcast. If there's a person, place, artifact, or natural wonder that has sparked your curiosity and you'd like for me to feature it on the show, please let me know. My website is thecuriousprofessorpodcast.com. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe to the Curious Professor podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like to become part of my community of curiosity seekers, be sure to visit my website, thecuriousprofessorpodcast.com, and join Dr. B's Hive. Until next time, always be learning and be curious with Dr. B.